362 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our friends, our clients, our family members, our pets, or really probably even ours three weeks from today. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency Acting Director Brandon Wales and uh, the Deputy General Counsel at DHS for Cyber and Technology Law, Jen Daskal, to talk about President Biden's executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. But first, we're going to do a news roundup, and we've got a newbie, Betsy Cooper, the director of the Aspen Institute's Tech Policy Hub. Betsy, welcome to your first Cyber Law podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. All right. Uh, you can say if you want, long-time listener, first-time caller, but uh, that might not be true. All right. Nick Weaver is a uh, long-time uh, uh, caller. Uh, I may never listen to it at all. I lecturer <laughs> in computer science uh, at the uh, University of Berkeley. Uh, Nick, great to have you. Thank you. Although, minor correction, I do actually speak for my cat. Yeah, that's not what she says. All right. And Maury Shank, uh, London-based lawyer and technologist. Uh, Maury, thank you for uh, jumping in to talk about EU developments. And I do listen. All right. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur of today's program. Since we're going to be talking about the executive order, which otherwise would have led this show, we're going to deprecate that a little and start with Colonial Pipeline update. Nick, uh, what's new since we checked in on this story a week ago? Well, the gas shortages came, mostly due to panic buying. The pipeline got back up running, fortunately, before too much damage could be done. Colonial Pipeline paid a $5 million ransom to And, and they got the, bupkis, right? They got a crappy key that barely worked, right? Yeah, but remember, the these days, the extortion is a double extortion. Even if you restore from backup, if you don't pay, they dump your data publicly, and that can be very expensive and embarrassing. Right, and I hear there have, are, there's also a, a, a triple threat now. People are saying, and if that doesn't get your attention, we'll DDoS you too. Yeah, because why not? Right. The gang or affiliate program in question, so the affiliate, remember these, they put the enterprise in criminal enterprise. So they operate under an affiliate system. So you've got the main affiliate program that handles infrastructure, tooling, negotiation, and then you farm it out to groups that do the actual exploitation. And this group alone, it looks like they've gotten 10 to $15 million in ransoms fairly recently. So this they, is a they, they very may just, profitable enterprise. They may just be the Minsk uh, version of McDonald's, the franchise holders operating out of Minsk who are doing this, right? Yeah, but this is something that the Russian-speaking cybercrime community has really optimized over the past decade. So over the past decade, they've created these affiliate systems and affiliate networks and specialization and this is the current fruit of it. There's internal drama that the affiliate program seems to have went away, whether that was hacked by a competitor or 
they just simply took themselves down to go quiet for a little bit before rebranding as something else. We don't know. So is this the equivalent um, of, of National McDonald's saying to all its franchisees, thanks for all the money, guys, but uh, we're out of business? Or thanks for all the money, guys. Don't worry, we're going to be changing to McDougal's tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, although why not keep the money? Uh, they're, they're claiming they, they were hacked, uh, and Cyber Command would love to have us believe that they stole all the money from these guys, but I'm not sure that's the no case. No way. Yeah. If, if we stole the money from these guys, we'd be much more stylistic about the transfers. So when the uh, FBI took a bunch of Silk Road coins, they all did it as individual transfers that spelled out FBI on a phone keyboard yeah. or keypad. It would be the same thing here. Betsy, um, uh, are, are there policy lessons coming out of this? Oh, a couple. I mean, so first I had to laugh at what we learned this week. I think the rest of the world caught up to you all when you were focused on the billing systems, right? So you stated very clearly last week that this was hitting the billing systems. I think the rest of the world only figured that out yesterday. And I think that's actually created a very interesting PR situation for uh, Colonial Pipeline, where now Twitter is all up in arms that this shutdown didn't necessarily affect the actual flow. It just affected whether people people could pay for it. And so so I think lesson one is actually not for policymakers, but for for the companies, which is you got to be prepared for the PR effects of these things on a number of dimensions. I think in terms of the direction for actual policy, well, you can look at uh, Russia and wonder, is this one of those situations where the hackers that are actually executing this have day jobs as government employees and are having a good time on the side and making a little bit of extra cash? and how the U.S. government is going to deal with that sort of dual approach. Do you attack the actual nation state actor? Do you try to go after the individuals who are very hard to identify? So it creates an entirely new level of national security approach. If you don't actually know who the perpetrator is or even whether it's the same perpetrator wearing a different hat on a day-to-day basis. So if you get mad enough, as we did in Afghanistan in 2001, you say, hey, you as a government are either unable or unwilling to deal with this problem, so we don't care about your sovereignty. We're going in to deal with it. Now, that's a very hard position to take with somebody like the Russians, but you can eventually we can get there if we choose to. Nick, uh, let me. I, I knew you had a couple of things that you wanted to say that I probably cut off. So on that, the Russians are unable and unwilling if the cyber criminals don't defecate where they feed. So that Russian cyber criminals only really get in trouble with the Russian government if they hack uh, Russian computers. So this one dumb trick to prevent uh, ransomware, install the Cyrillic keyboard as an option. That a lot of ransomware just does not install. Wouldn't you uh, think that there'd be a big market in basically honeypot networks attached to yours, which are full of Cyrillic keyboards? That would be a it would be a sweet deal, huh? No, you put the Cyrillic keyboard on your computer. You can have multiple keyboard layouts, okay. and it's if any of the layouts is Cyrillic, they won't install. And so these gangs operate not necessarily with any consent of the Russian government. It's just the Russian government doesn't seem to care at minimum. Yeah, they tolerate it. 
And yeah. I, I suspect that every once in a while they come down on somebody either because they are unhappy of the, about the attention they're getting or because they think they have access to some sites that they would – that the Russian government would like to get into. Or maybe Actually, these guys – what happens yep. – and this happened previously on the farm spam gangs is they both hacked each other and also bribed the local police to go after each other. And the problem is it's a much easier bribe to get the police to go after somebody else than it does to make them go away. Oh, sweet. Okay. All right. One last thing about the Colonial Pipeline that I think they're going to end up regretting. They were pretty standoffish with the government. Didn't complain exactly, except they complained about how long it took to get information from the Colonial Pipeline about the kinds of intrusions and the signatures they were seeing. I think that's going to produce legislation and maybe regulatory action that pushes people to produce information, may even mean subpoenas for for DHS to get the information. And finally, I'd like to add two more little things. This is a reminder that efficiency is the enemy of resiliency. And we as a society have focused so much on efficiency over the past decades that we don't have resiliency um, because resiliency is anti-efficient. Yeah. And the other is, in the end, we really don't have a ransomware problem. We have a Bitcoin problem. If we took out the cryptocurrencies, we'd take out this entire situation. Uh, certainly, it would be much harder. I mean, mailing people uh, gift cards uh, to, to get your data back is never going to scale well. All right, Maury, there was a decision on Friday from the Irish High Court saying, essentially rejecting all of Facebook's attacks on the data privacy commissioner's approach, which was basically to say, I think it's time to tell Facebook they can't export their data to the United States under the corporate clauses. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an assessment of how significant a step this is? It, it feels pretty significant. I mean, Facebook, so after the Schrems 2 decision last July, the Irish Data Protection Commission pretty quickly came out with this decision in late August, which was one of the things that Facebook criticized was the speed with which they acted. And Facebook put out all kinds of procedural objections to it. It got pretty ugly. The Data Protection Commission at one point called it an abusive process, later withdrew that. Court wasn't too happy. But the court did, a, and Facebook said, and the Data Protection Commission said that there was no ability of judicial review for their interim decision. The court did a really interesting thing, which it said, yes, judicial review is available, but then it dismissed all of Facebook's objections. So they- Be careful what you wish for. Now now those objections won't work the next time around. Yeah, they won't work the next time. And they looked at adequacy. Uh, that They didn't really look at the facial, is this decision right? But they did look at uh, sufficiency of the reasoning of on the things that the Data Protection Commission did do. And they said they did give sufficient reasons. So I think it's going to be pretty hard for Facebook, although I'm sure they will allege when there's a final decision to successfully challenge. And that's that produces some pretty significant issues for them in terms of storing data in, in Europe and combining it with their U.S. data, which they may not be able to do and so forth. The handwriting on the wall ever since the Schrems decision, this is just working through the 
procedure to bring it home to Facebook and gradually to everybody else, partly because the corporate clauses were not struck down. You could rely on them, but the rationale for relying on them was always kind of thin. So my sense is that Facebook's trying to delay the inevitable, and Nick Clegg, has, who's the Facebook policy guy, has kind of said, we're hoping to hold off the, the order in time for the U.S. and the EU to negotiate something. And the negotiations are going so slowly that I think that's unlikely in the extreme. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And one of the criticisms of Facebook was that the Data Protection Commission had ruled before the European um, Data Protection Board came out with guidance on what additional procedures would be sufficient for transfers under the standard contractual clauses. But those have now come out and they're really strict. So it's not easy to use the standard contractual clauses for the kind of broad purposes Facebook does. I think it's going to be harder and harder unless there are country-specific decisions. And as you say, a new privacy shield is not immediately on the cards. I mean, if, if, if it were a high enough priority for the administration, they could get it. They've got a whole bunch of negotiations going on with the EU, and they're willing to relax some of the things the Trump administration did that the EU hated. The question is, what price are they trying to get for that. And it doesn't look like bailing out Facebook or, frankly, our entire intelligence community is high on the Biden administration's list of things they want to do. Yeah. And even if there's a decision, I mean, the European Court of Justice hasn't, I mean, the Schrems 2 decision seems to suggest that anything that the U.S. would find acceptable isn't going to be good enough for the ECJ. Although if there was a, a new privacy shield, that would at least kick the can a little further down the road for Facebook. Yeah. All right. So DHS is in the news for something a little vague. And we touched on this before. It's become a little less vague, but only a little. That they want to launch a warning system to find domestic terrorism threats on public social media. And it's getting a very funny reaction, uh, uh, mostly skeptical. Nick, what are they actually trying to do? What's the best case you can make for this domestic terrorism scrutiny that they want to do? Well, it's unclear. It was easy before January 6th. You just follow whoever follows real Donald Trump, and that gave you a good lead. <laughs> but what they're going to do is find that the net has just a lot of chatter, that you'll find 5,000 rectal cranial inversion cases, and only a couple of which are serious threats, and it's really hard to tell the difference at this scale. And unless they're planning an insurgency where they need the mob as cover, the mob doesn't matter. The mob is noise. Yeah, I, 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 I dissent from the theory that the media has been pushing that it was obvious if you just read uh, social media that terrible things and violence was intended against the Capitol. I think that's wrong. I think people who read those things were unduly optimistic about how it would turn out. But a lot of the talk about violence there in those posts was preparing for the violence they were expecting from the left rather than preparing. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Uh, that's, that, that's how I read that. Uh, read the federal indictments. Marcy Wheeler keeps a nice catalog. I, of, I have uh, read some of those. Different but conspiracies. Look, I, I, I understand that there are were a couple of groups that were 
prepared to be much more aggressive. That's a pretty small uh, a bunch. And even those guys, when you read it and ask, are, do you think they're talking about attacking people at the Capitol or talking about uh, the rest? Stewart, yep. they put up a gallows and were trying to lynch Mike Pence. Oh, they put up, I'm sorry, they carried flags that said, don't tread on me. Does that mean that they were launching the second American revolution? I, I, there's a lot of symbolism. They, they thought that. they were actually. That's why they were so bold I, 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 themselves. I'm sorry. They thought they were going to be the heroes. You probably believe that when they say uh, you can take my uh, gun from my cold, dead hands, that they're all planning to, to fight to the last bullet if gun control comes in. This is just part of American sloganeering. All right, we'll let Betsy weigh in on what DHS is doing. I mean, so for me, I think on the one hand, it's like not all that surprising that they would be doing this. Obviously, they have the legal capabilities to jump in and look at whatever is made public. So what's interesting here is actually that they're trying to make a big deal about this in the press. On the other hand, it's really hard to disaggregate the speech from the speaker. So one of the things they've been very clear, DHS has been saying that they're not actually going to be looking at who's saying the stuff, just what's going on. I think that has the noise problem that Nick points out. But of course, if something actually does happen, the first thing they're going to do is go back and look at who said it. Yeah. So I, I feel as though this is all a PR play and and they've been doing this for a long time. And I guess the real question is just who are they looking at? Under the Trump administration, they were looking at what in, in immigrants were saying on social media. This time, it's uh, potential rioters. Everybody's up for the challenge. So I think you're right that one of the head-spinning aspects of this debate is that just six months ago, everybody was sure that it was uh, the second coming of the Third Reich for uh, DHS to be looking at public media and social media because it was the Trump administration and everything they did was the second coming of the Third Reich. And now that it's being used against Trump supporters, everybody is switching sides, or at least that's not fair. The Brennan Center hasn't switched sides yet, and some of the people on the left are still saying, gee, I don't know, this seems like a, a bad precedent. And DHS is trying to navigate that because they have a whole bunch of decisions right on the, the books saying this has been misunderstood and misused and isn't really valuable anyway. Stop it because of what they did during the summer. Well, I think there's a difference between what DHS was trying to do before, which is actually to get handles from people. You have to disclose your actual social media accounts. Here, they're just talking about mining what is publicly available and not even trying to identify different individuals. That just seems like normal law enforcement activity. So for me, the bigger surprise is why talk about it at all? Yeah. So part of the problem is, if I understand it right, they've they've got rules that make it hard for them to participate in nominally public groups where people have to have their names disclosed. And under the general rules for law enforcement at DHS, at least, and I think this is probably true across the board, you can't use fake names if you are not conducting an, a, a criminal investigation of some sort. So you can't just check in and mislead people about who you are to see what they're saying, because that is a law enforcement activity aimed at people who aren't suspected yet of criminal behavior. And that that tends to make people shut up and they're unhappy about that. And I can understand that. If people are willing to say it in public, maybe it is sensible for the government to be able to get access to it without saying, by the way, I'm a Fed, would you repeat that? That's probably why they have used 
contractors in the past because the contractors can just identify themselves uh, and they don't have the same obligation. Yeah, the stuff about immigrants was information they were trying to get, I think, principally well, there may have been two. One, they wanted uh, social media information about people who wanted to come here so that they could look for uh, signs of radicalization. I don't know that there has been a lot of interest in getting information about individual immigrants who are already here. But I suppose if you're ICE and you're looking for somebody who's here illegally, you would want to be able to uh, see what, their, what information they've disclosed in their social media. All right. Well, Nick, I know you're going to love this story because you, you hate Bitcoin so, and you're not really a big fan of Tor. So when Tor <laughs> bites Bitcoin, uh, there's a small celebration in the Weaver household. What happened? Okay. So this is actually a renewal of something that has been a problem for years. So Tor relies on volunteer random computers called exit nodes to route traffic from Tor to the real internet. This is a thankless task because you get all sorts of abuse coming through Tor. And so I have like a colleague who was running a node for research and they got a visit from the FBI because the FBI was trying to track down something. Only reason you really want to run an exit node for something that gains you advantage is to cheat. So WikiLeaks started by running an exit node and stealing diplomat emails. And a classic one that has been going on for a while is exit nodes that change Bitcoin addresses, URLs for Bitcoin mixers, et cetera, as a way of stealing Bitcoin. And apparently this has been a huge fraction of the Tor exit node bandwidth has been this. And well, frankly, it's a way to justify running an exit node. So the Tor project should be happy. <laughs> but they've been taking them down. They keep discovering them and trying to take them down. It's a never-ending and thankless task for a project that I, I continue to think is not worth all of the pain that's associated with it for the very modest and mainly theoretical human rights advantages that it produces. Okay, Betsy, $50 billion for uh, new semiconductor fabs in the United States. Everybody seems to like that. The guys who make semi, who build semiconductor fabs have endorsed this. Now the guys who buy semiconductors have endorsed it. Uh, is there anybody who doesn't like this idea? Oh, well, certainly Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet are loving it. It's super interesting to see all these groups together, creating a lobbying group, all working together. That doesn't happen uh, very often that they agree. Who wouldn't like it is probably the folks that are considering taking antitrust activity against these big companies. It feels quite inconsistent to be farming out tons of money to help these companies uh, get access to chips. On the other hand, you're trying to limit them on the other side, thinking about antitrust activity, that feels a little bit incongruous. And I think is something you're gonna be seeing increasingly over the next few months is that on the one hand, here in the cybersecurity space, we're constantly telling small and medium-sized businesses to run and go get on the cloud, assist yourself that way. And on the other hand, we're saying, let's break up the big companies. 
So this chip thing is just another example of where that inconsistency is going to come into play. Yeah, I think that's probably right, although everybody accepts the idea that making chips is, if not a natural monopoly, is such a capital-intensive business that the moat around those businesses is enormous. Only Apple has gotten into the business in the last 10 years, and even they are basically just doing chip design, if I understand it right. So they're not even in the business. It's TSMC and Samsung and kind of Intel are, are still it. And there's a couple others, but uh, those are the folks that have done well in the business. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that's an awful lot of money and it's coming from somewhere and we're going to need to be pretty careful about spending it. And then as you point out, there's going to be a price to be paid one way or the other. The people who line up for this are going to be asked whether they are politically correct on some valence or other. And it depends on who's in, uh, who's handing out the cash at the time. So my guess is that we're going to see a lot of fighting over the terms and conditions here. Betsy? It reminds me of the energy issues that are going to be coming down the pipeline too, right? So there's going to be huge investments into clean energy technologies. And then a lot of the usual suspects are going to be fighting this out. So I just hope that in the process of doling out these huge sums of money, we don't end up with the next Solyndra. Obviously, you can't compare the big tech companies to Solyndra, but you can say that when you start doling out cash very quickly without figuring out exactly how you want it to be used, that mistakes happen. And so I think, especially since we don't have a lot of history of chip manufacturing here, there's going to be some interesting partnerships that will have to be built. And so, so let's wait and see and hold our breath. I'm not, I I don't agree with you that there's no history. There's a big history of of building chips here, but it's all inside Intel, or almost all inside Intel. Uh, There have been other, the Global Foundries has some places. And if you want to find people who know how to build chips, Phoenix, Arizona is a great place to go. So I, that's, if you want it to stay that way as Intel loses its hold on manufacturing because it's lost its hold on chip sales, you probably have to move to the fab model. And that means bringing TSMC in to to build. And that's what they've said they're going to do. We'll see. Okay. The executive order. I, we're going to talk about this in the interview, but Nick, Betsy, I'm going to give you a chance to tell me what is the one Thing I ought to ask Brandon Wales and Jen Daskal about when we interview them. My question would be, how much do you think the NTSB no-fault resolution is going to impact things? Because I think it'll impact things a lot. Yep. Okay. That's a good one. We are going to talk about that because I think that uh, the insertion of that idea into the executive order is brilliant lawyering on the part of DHS, if nothing else. Betsy? So for me, um, it's what Bobby Chesney called in his article, the cloud love fest. So if everything's supposed to move to the cloud and now we have all these antitrust investigations into all the big cloud holders, how are we going to balance those two sides of government? That that seems like a problem waiting to happen. Okay. All right. I will ask that as well. I, I, I too noticed the cloud fest. I'm more enthusiastic about cloud maybe than you are, right? but maybe it just means they'll have to give it to the government for free. Speaking of which, for free, WhatsApp is free, except if you don't agree to their privacy terms, apparently, and they can't use the information they're getting from you, they're going to slowly degrade your service and you're going to lose control of your contacts. What's going on there, Betsy? 
Well, so I think this is the new business model for privacy policies with social media companies. They're going to just annoy you until you give up and accept. I had a similar experience when I had a Pixel phone a couple months ago. Keep denying permissions, privacy permissions, and it just keeps asking you until you either accidentally click the permission or the whole thing grinds to the halt. So for me, this raises a question as to whether this is actually a choice. And it's particularly true here because WhatsApp's response was that this new privacy policy just applies to business account settings. Well, if that's true, then why are they getting everyone who doesn't have a business account to need to accept it or grind them to a halt? So I think there's more going on here, but the overarching point for me is that this drip annoy you till you accept is the new way to get people into into giving up some of their permissions. Yeah, I, I think this is, is them finally admitting that they have to say, you thought this was free, but it's not. Uh, uh, you're paying with your data, and if you won't pay with your data, you're not going to get the service. So that that is what it feels like. All right, Nick, I know you're going to love this story. I sort of love it too, but from a different direction. Apple hired the author of Chaos Monkeys, which is a fellow named Garcia Martinez. I loved that book. It was hilarious. But within a week, he was fired because he said in the book, I mean, it's it trashes everybody in Silicon. He left. Uh, he's a very smart guy, very adept businessman. He worked at Morgan Stanley for several years left there, burned all his bridges in a scathing review of Morgan Stanley's business, went out to Silicon Valley, ended up starting a company, then working uh, for Facebook in advertising, left there, burned all of those bridges. Uh, And part of the fun of the book is just how many bridges he was willing to burn uh, in a delightfully funny takedown of almost everybody he dealt with. What I didn't see coming is that he burned bridges with large chunks of the opposite sex, calling Silicon Valley women soft, weak, entitled feminists, more or less. Uh, And um, what do you know? Uh, Women who worked at Apple said, oh, you've got to protect us from this man because we're soft and weak, but we've got entitled feminism, so you got to fire him. Uh, and Apple caved and fired him. Uh, Let's be honest, Yeah. First of all, his book reads like uh, you trained a GP3 neural net on Hunter S. Thompson. It's not actually all that witty. It just is the edgelord equivalent of trying to pretend to be. He's, he's, up, on, he's up on two California wheels. I, I will grant you that. very strong laws about sexual harassment. And this guy is a serial harasser outside of just the context of the book. And... As a consequence, it really wasn't 200 or 2,000 Apple employees going, oh, my God. It was Apple's lawyers going, oh, my God. This guy is a walking, talking, hostile work environment claim, and the book gives you the receipts to do it. That's not what, it, that's not what they, they said. They, I have to deal with, every two years, a two-hour sexual harassment training. Fortunately, the online version, after you plow through the questions, you can read about actual cases. And this guy was, if he was going on there and stayed on, he would be one such of those cases of, oh, my God, you really don't want this sort of thing to fester so he in your said, company. So he says, wait, Nick, he says that he was vetted 
in detail by people who read the book. In detail, he would have never been hired because his area of expertise in online advertising, he's very much part of the privacy invasive online advertisement model. And that's actually a attack on Apple and Apple's hiring him even aside from the hostile work environment claim would be very bad for them because it goes against their business model because so, Apple's so, business let me, let me, model is selling privacy. So let me, let me stop you there for a second because I do have – I did have a, a thought about what's go, what might be going on here beneath the uh, the blankets. Apple is in the business is, – is in the process of disintermediating Facebook's uh, advertising business by essentially cutting them off from access to the activities of people using iPhones. That's what the, the – questions about whether you want to share and be tracked are doing. They're, Facebook's just losing um, subscribers as a result of that or losing the ability to track. Facebook has, or, or Apple has seen how much money Google can make from advertising. They're clearly getting into the advertising business. Uh, I think that it's quite possible that what Facebook looked at and said, well, here it is. They are, this is part of their effort to replace us as the other big player in advertising to join Google. And we should make it as painful as possible by going after somebody we already hate, who's the guy who made fun of Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg in his book. So I'm guessing that what we're going to see, what we're seeing here is the leading edge of Apple gradually taking over uh, a role in advertising that is inconsistent with their privacy stance. But what the hell? So is the, the business they're doing in China. They'll find a way to PR around that. I don't think so. But in any case, this guy should have never been hired. And uh, he has a real reputation of harassing women outside of just what he wrote in the book. He was a dangerous hire from an HR perspective. All right. So I, for the listeners, this is really – I love this book. The New York Times liked it. The Washington Post liked it. It is a hilarious book with a lot of insight into how the advertising business works, how Silicon Valley works. And it is scabrous in its hostility to almost everybody he has dealt with. And part of the, uh, the fun is saying, I can't believe – He's going to get away with saying that, and he didn't. All right, let's do uh, uh, three or four quickies. There was a uh, there's a book out about Jeff Bezos's love life. That's not particularly interesting from a cyber law point of view, but that whole story that we were fed about how the Saudis had hacked his phone and gotten all this stuff and handed it off to the Inquirer that the Bezos camp was peddling for a while. It's all BS. They they were just looking for a way to to turn this into something where Bezos could be a hero. It looks as though it was his brother-in-law all along. Uh, so I, it just goes to show you can't really trust spin when this much money is involved. And Nick, Microsoft came out with an AI poisoning antidote, I guess it is, uh, and they've released it. I looked through it. It was interesting. The case studies that they're trying to prevent are all over the map. So I wasn't sure how this product actually works. So what it looks like is it's basically the equivalent of a fuzz tester for AI systems. So fuzz testing for normal computer programs is you just basically are literally attacking it with all sorts of random stuff until it crashes. 
And this looks to be very much a AI fuzz tester. So for these machine learning systems, understanding how and when they fail is really important. And this is trying to give people a free tool to do this. Okay. I, I, it looked to me to a degree as though the fuzzing actually tells you a lot about how the machine learning algorithm works which since you and I are both kind of hung up on explainability, is the, are there explainability insights built into the, the fuzz testing? I'm not sure. I need to look at that in okay. more detail to give you an answer. All right. Well, we'll come back to it because I, I think this is fun and it was nice of Microsoft to release it publicly. All right. That is our news. Let's turn now to our interview with Brandon Wales, who's the acting head of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and Jen Daskal, who is new at DHS, who's the Deputy General Counsel for Cyber and Technology Law. Brandon, welcome. Stuart, I'm really glad to be here. All right. And Jen, uh, welcome. How are you adjusting to government life? It's fabulous. And I am honored to be on your show as a longtime listener. It's great to be on. It's terrific to have you. Uh, okay. So you know what to expect and you're, you're ready to defend to DHS, although I'm actually easier on DHS than many agencies. So the main thing I wanted to talk about and I promised to talk about was the executive order. And uh, we might just walk through it. It, it is I guess I would say it is already one crisis back in our cybersecurity crises. Uh, it is aimed at, uh, I would say, dealing with the supply chain issues that governments faced after Microsoft Exchange and SolarWinds all had problems. And this is an effort to say, what lessons did we learn from that and how can we fix them? That said, it is really for, it's a revolution in government cybersecurity. Doesn't mean it'll work, doesn't mean it will change the world, but it will certainly change the lives of everybody who works in cybersecurity inside the government. Brandon, do you think that's fair? I, I think it's fair, but I would also say that I think it builds on what has been a kind of decade of maturation and growth in the cybersecurity of the federal government and, and how we use both our, our soapbox and, and our unique position in the market to, to drive cybersecurity trends uh, in the broader community. Yeah, I, fair enough. The other theme that I pulled from this is this was CISA's moment. If you do a, a control F count, I'm willing to bet that CISA is the agency that is mentioned most often in practically every one of the sections after the problem is identified, CISA is the solution. I have to say that makes me proud and pleased that something that was just a gleam in our eye in 2007, 2008 is now getting that kind of respect. But I also know how flimsy that operation has been. It's always up on two wheels trying to get things done. I, do you think that CISA has the troops now to do all the things that you've been assigned in this executive order? Stuart, I, I think your larger point is the right one. I think it reflects the fact that CISA was established as a you know purpose-built to be the kind of center of gravity for the defensive cybersecurity mission for the U.S. government. And that when you have an executive order that's focused on the the cybersecurity of the federal government, CISA is going to be at the heart of 
of um, all of the requirements to be able to make that a reality. Yeah, I think your more specific one is right too. It, it is a challenge. No one knows that more acutely than than me and, and the folks at CISA who have the responsibility of now implementing what is an, an ambitious set of tasks to drive change in a extremely complicated environment. Uh, 102 federal civilian executive branch departments and agencies from uh, big sprawling departments like DHS and DOJ down to micro agencies like the Marine Mammal Commission. It's a, it is a big job. I do th think that we are better positioned now than ever to be able to execute it. That's in, in with, with a strong thanks to members of Congress that over the last several years have built up our capacity to be able to implement things like this. We've had 20% growth in our budget between 2019 and 2020. We've had substantial new resources provided as part of the American Rescue Plan Act funding earlier this year that will be a significant down payment on, on kind of really improved long-term capabilities to, to protect the .gov. Well, here's, the, here's uh, something I learned in government that uh, I, no one talks about. The most stressful thing in government is to take big budget cuts, but the second most stressful thing is to get enormous plus-ups. Figuring out a way to spend that money wisely in time to achieve the goals that all that money is supposed to make uh, possible is enormously stressful because you haven't been doing it. And and as somebody once told me in the, the sit room, some DOD official, uh, he said, well, Stuart, I always thought that government was the best way to do something the second time. A, a, and you get to do it the first time. This is not going to be easy. No, you're you're right. It's We spend, have spent a lot of time both shaping the substantial new in, infusion of, of money we received as part of the American, American Rescue Plan Act. And since then have spent a lot of time working with the Hill, working with OMB, working with the White House on how do we execute this money in the most defensible way possible and the way that's going to generate the, the best security gains for the government. But as I indicated, this is also a down payment. We have been operating in what I would probably call the cybersecurity deficit for the past five to 10 years. The environment, the, the threat environment, the technology environment has evolved so quickly and our government programs have not kept pace. And this new funding was necessary to begin to kind of get us back on on where we needed to be to deal with the threats we're now facing. So let me ask, I, I, I want to turn to some of the things that uh, you've been all, uh, empowered to do. And threat sharing is the first topic that's covered. To, uh, and I get the sense from both the way the executive order is structured and some of the stories around it that there have been real concerns on the part of DHS that it didn't get as much information about the exchange server exploits as it should have from the forensics firms, that it didn't get enough information about solar winds when that broke, and that it certainly didn't get a lot of information from Colonial Pipeline that we've been following, and it took them close to a week to start handing over signatures of the attack. To what extent does this executive order or the NTSB equivalent change the legal framework? And I'll ask Jen to talk a little bit about, uh, one, my perception that there is a problem, and two, the extent to which the executive order actually changes the, the playing field. So, Stuart, you're right that the EO was responding to a problem, and it was a problem that limited via contract or was perceived to be limited via contract the ability of the private sector to share and particularly to share with, sec with CISA 
some of the threat information that it was receiving and that it obtained in the wake of solar winds. And so what the EO does is it does a few things. It uses effectively the procurement power to dictate that future contracts ensure that there is sharing of information to CISA and to the relevant government entities, and there's reporting requirements built in into, into contracts with service providers. And this is obviously key in terms of ensuring that the federal government and CISA in particular gets the information it needs to respond to threats and respond to incidents as well. That's a long, slow process, amending, you know, agreeing on how to amend and then amending and then waiting for the contracts to take effect. It could be years before there is a widespread obligation to share information. Am I right? So there's, there's, as part of this, there's also an obligation to review existing contracts and update existing contracts as possible and appropriate. So there's a recognition of the fact that absent that, this could take some time. And also just point out that this is not the only reporting requirements in the federal government. There are other regulatory authorities that DHS wields, TSA, Coast Guard, CISA with respect to high-risk chemical facilities in which there are a range of other reporting requirements that are also have been and can be imposed via regulation. Okay. Uh, I, fair enough. And I am going to ask you about Colonial Pipeline and the NTSB model, but I want to give Brandon of the question that Betsy suggested with, which is there's a, a cloud love affair going on in this executive order. And to my mind, at least, it's justified. It's, there's a lot of security problems you solve with the cloud, but you create a lot of opportunities for stupid mistakes that are disastrous because there's more data stored in fashions that can be released. So, And we've got a whole workforce doing IT that has managed to learn from its mistakes not to do the dumb things you can do on your own servers and now has to learn a completely different set of dumb things not to do on the cloud. How do you think this actually works for the next few years as we're trying to make this transition? So, so Stuart, I, I will say that in some respects, we're already there. Most agencies have adopted cloud for a number of critical services, things from traditional business email and business software, like your word processor and your spreadsheets, all the way up to critical service platforms that are providing their functions and agency-wide, agency-wide. So we're already beginning to live with this. And this executive order kind of Again, going to your earlier point, teeing off of what we learned from the Solar Winds incident, where we saw the adversary exploiting Microsoft Office 365 online to as an area of concentrated risk, where they were able to, by fraudulently minting authentication tokens, gain access to broad swaths of emails from targeted accounts. So the executive order says, recognizing that, what do we need to do to improve our ability to understand what's happening on cloud environments, which is why it begins to talk about better improved reference architectures for federal cloud deployments. It begins to talk about how we are security around the cloud. What are the logging requirements that have not existed to date? So I think it, it the cloud is not is not invulnerable You're from deploying your enterprise software to the cloud, but there are benefits and we need to make sure that if we are going to the cloud, those applications that are going to be in the cloud are as secure as possible and begins to kind of push the federal government to a more secure cloud architecture. That will take time. It is not going to be easy, but it is something that that we believe is essential. But it, it, the 
one good news for CISA is since this is relatively new and the security issues are relatively new, as people move to the cloud, you can play a bigger role in securing their systems than you would if you were trying to secure legacy systems that they understand it would claim you broke if you tried to uh, uh, secure them. So this is a, an opportunity for CISA to play a role in enabling secure transition to the cloud. And I think it's also one where we are, as part of our funding under the American Rescue Plan Act, looking to deploy a kind of pilot secure business environment that can be used as the basis for capabilities that can be deployed across the entire uh, civilian executive branch. So we are thinking through right now, beginning the the process for putting that in place that could, I think, really fast forward the government's ability to, to operate in a more secure way in the cloud. So I think you're right. We recognize that opportunity and think that this is a valuable place where we can demonstrate the of these kind of service offerings from CISA to the rest of the government. So as I remember, one of the things that the attackers uh, utilized to spoof their way into authentication systems was an implementation uh, by Microsoft of third-party credentials that had some business advantages but also was more easily screwed up than one would like. Uh, it does raise the question, to what extent does CISA have to have some ability to say to cloud providers, hey, you're doing it in a way that's going to cause a lot of problems, you should stop? You know, I, I think that's an area that we're going to have to continue to look at it and what value uh, we can bring, particularly for using our procurement power to kind of drive the market. If we set a, a cloud security standard for the entire federal government uh, and the federal government moves to that standard. What are the specific protocols that are in place? What are the specific controls that are required? So I, I think we need to work through that, but I, I think your underlying point is the right one, which is attacking identity is really has been repeated over and over again as part of multiple of these large-scale intrusion campaigns, the adversary's ability to either create fraudulent identities, to spoof identities, to compromise identities, has repeated itself over and over again. And, the, and that is why it is so important that we evaluate how we, can tr how we handle identity management for any of the systems that will authenticate for federal agencies. And I think it's going to be a key part of, of multiple parts of the executive order implementation. Yeah, we have not seen the end of that or even the beginning. Artificial intelligence designed to, to uniquely tailor identity compromise attacks to individuals, to their specific job and psychology is enormously productive from a uh, hacking point of view. We're going to see lots more of that, I think. Uh, let me be one last question here. There, there are standards here for what you need to do when you move your uh, data. And it says two-factor authentication. Well, for God's sake, yes, obviously, or multi-factor authentication, you, I think you call it. Encrypting data in motion, sure. The executive order says data at rest should be encrypted. That's hard, isn't it? How do you use data if it's encrypted? You can hardly have an encrypted spreadsheet and then manipulate it, can you? Well, you can have your data stores that are not moving to, to be encrypted, and that's a, a growing standard. I, I think that's actually not going to be one of the more challenging parts of this. And so uh, this is it more all, it's decrypted on the desktop when a person is actually working Got on it. it, but where it's stored is obviously should be encrypted. That's, Got I'd it. say, pretty much the standard. So I that, that makes sense of, of people who are 
have not fully deployed encryption across their networks. Okay, so it's warm backup data at rest ought to be encrypted, which certainly does make sense. Okay, supply chain security for software, it's, it gets a lot of attention here, and there's a lot of interesting stuff. It's mostly handed off to NIST to come up with standards. I'm a little puzzled because, of course, the standards don't enforce themselves. And my question is, what's CISA going to do? do once the standards are in place to make sure that they're actually being implemented and that they're turning into something useful. A software bill of materials is only a good idea if you've got software that can tell you something about the bill of materials you're uh, installing. Well, I think that there's going to be a number of tools that we're going to want to deploy. I'd say First of all, how do we use our procurement power to ensure that the software we're buying is following the secure software development standards that are identified in this executive order and that leading the development of? There are authorities that we have, including issue issuing binding operational directives on federal agencies. There will be probably OMB policy to this effect, and, and our binding operational directives can kind of add to that. So I do think that we were going to want to, and this is across a number of the executive order requirements, we need to look at which ones of our authorities we can actually utilize to help further its implementation. And then we'll be doing a lot of work as part of the deployment of endpoint detection and response. So we will, and gaining better access to object level data on a network. So right now, CISA has summary level data of agency networks. Part of the executive order requires us to go deeper, get object level data, what's happening on workstations and critical servers throughout those networks. So looking at those will give us better insights in terms of how agencies are using, complying with the execution of, of various requirements under the executive order and what areas we need to spend more time working with them on. That was like a 10-year battle because obviously no other agency wants to let some other agency see what's happening on their desktops and servers. And so there was just a bitter fight over doing that. So this was inevitable, I think, but congratulations on uh, making the inevitable real. It, I, I think it's... It, what I said earlier is, is the way I think about this. This is a maturation of federal cybersecurity. Uh, we could not have done this 10 years ago when we started these efforts because the concepts weren't there, the understanding of the value wasn't there, and we needed to start doing the basics. I think we've we've knocked off a lot of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to the federal agencies, which is why you have to see adversaries like the Russian SVR execute the most sophisticated types of, of compromises in order to gain access to federal agencies yep. at, at large scale, using zero-day vulnerabilities to, to gain access to, to even pockets of federal agencies. And that's a testament to the work that's been done. But it also reflects that now we're into some of the harder problems. And so we really need to buckle down. And that's, I think, what really is embodied by this executive order. So I want to talk to Jen about this because I'm going to give her credit for the brilliant lawyering that went into this. The idea of having the cyberspace equivalent of the NTSB that does reports on every aircraft crash and the like, or train crash for that matter, and draws lessons and changes the rules, that's, a, to my mind, a terrific opportunity for learning now that we realize that we are staggering from crisis to crisis in cybersecurity. And the idea makes sense. I didn't think there was any authority for that uh, in federal law. But DHS found some and uh, provided it to the, to the White House. Essentially, the authority to stand up 
additional ed, uh, information sharing advisory councils and setting this up as a council to look at particular failures. It, it's It means you can give people who share information with you about a particular disaster some legal protections – not a lot, but some FOIA and maybe regulatory mis- uh, regulatory use. But it is an adaptation of a different animal for this new job. My my guess is you're going to need more law than you've got. And I think I I told you before we started that you're I'm going to think you're going to need subpoena power if you want to get everything. Microsoft knows about what happened uh, in uh, their exchange server compromises. They're going to insist on a subpoena, I'm guessing. And Colonial Pipeline has not exactly looked as though they were rushing to provide information. So they might benefit from a subpoena as well. But you don't have a subpoena authority at this point, do you? So, so there is not a, a subpoena authority in the EO. That is true. I also don't want to take credit for something I didn't do. I will um, defer. I will. Del- I will acknowledge that there were other very creative lawyers, not me, who were involved in crafting this particular provision. And third, one of the things that the board is empowered to do is to make recommendations, among other things, as to what additional authorities might be needed. So that very well may be something that becomes a recommendation that then is, is something that would require congressional action that's not something that can be done via an, 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 oh, and there's actually a, there's legislation moving now on a kind of colonial pipeline follow-up to say we really need to require more of uh, critical infrastructure and one of the things is you've got to report your incidents and I wouldn't be surprised if they realize that maybe you need to also respond to subpoenas if there's a disaster Brandon and, and Stuart I was going to say part of what the the Cyber Safety Review Board is designed to do under the executive order is to look at the effectiveness of the government response, what it was doing in in its engagement with the private sector. And there's a variety of ways in which the government is collecting information from service providers in the the course of its incident response. Some of that is done under voluntary information sharing through CISA. Some of that is done through lawful processes through the FBI or the Secret Service or others. And so there may be information available to the federal government that is non-public information. Now, There may be some questions about how that information is shared with an external review board, and that's something we'll have to work through. But the idea that uh, there already are tools in the government's toolbox to gain access to the kind of information that you are talking about, and that was used during SolarWinds, it was used during Exchange and others, and it will continue to be used uh, to ensure we have effective incident response uh, to any cyber incident. Yeah, and but you, it's obviously better if those are tools that are in the intelligence community or at Cyber Command to be able to use them in real time and not a week or two after the event. And so the more intimate the uh, information sharing can be, the better. And my guess is, knowing Silicon Valley, they won't want to do that unless they can say they were required to do it. Okay, we've only got a little bit of time left. I want to at least talk about other things that are happening at DHS on cybersecurity and maybe the other thing that is happening is Secretary Mayorkas has announced sprints, cybersecurity sprints, uh, and these are supposed to be 60-day efforts to get a handle on a particular problem. Ransomware is one of them. Workforce, getting a cyber workforce is another. 
can you, without giving away something that is still pre-decisional, how much can you actually do in a 60-day sprint? I'll ask Jen because everybody blames the lawyers when they say they can't get everything done. I think so. So clearly, we're not going to solve ransomware in 60 days. So I'm going to be really upfront about that. But I think it highlights th- this is an area by announcing these sprints, by focusing on these sprints, Secretary Mayorkas is signaling high priority focus areas. And obviously, ransomware is one of them. Dealing with workforce issues is another. And so he is using this these opportunities to announce priorities and focusing on, on sprints and a way to, to motivate and focus and to really kind of push work in high priority areas. And how does it feel on the inside? Is he expecting a inside DHS consensus on things that need to be done that haven't been done now within 60 days? Is he going to call you in on the 59th day and say, okay, uh, what's, what are you telling me I should be doing that I can do right now? So I think, so So what he is doing is, and what the workforce is doing is focusing on the range of ways in which a whole of DHS approach to something like ransomware can focus its efforts. So both on the cybersecurity issues that we've been talking about, the communication issues about how to do good cybersecurity, the range of law enforcement efforts that are being led by Secret Service, to some extent HSI within ICE, and obviously in partnership with DOJ. And again, focusing energy, effort, attention on on ransomware as as a critical issue for the homeless. Okay. My last question for you, I I can see you, the the listeners can't, but are you actually phoning in from an office in St. Elizabeth's where DHS is headquartered? I am normally at St. Elizabeth's. Today I am at home, which is why I have a brick wall instead of just a big glass window behind me Uh, that has a light glaring in behind me. All right. And I, I, I always ask this because I still have not gotten an answer. Who got Roscoe Pound's office? Roscoe Pound, of course, was the famous fascist poet who did propaganda for the, the Nazis uh, uh, in World War II, was arrested, going to be tried for treason. His buddies bailed him out by saying he was obviously crazy and they insisted he be sent to St. Elizabeth's for several years until everybody forgot about being mad about his broadcasts. And so he had a cell at St. Elizabeth's when it was uh, an insane asylum. Somebody has that office. That's uh, not currently included on the tour, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll look into it. Okay, uh, last opportunity. Anything that I didn't ask you about on the executive order or the new DHS authorities that I should have that you want to tell me? Stuart, the only thing I would close with is right, what I think the secretary has most wanted to do was to elevate the issue of cybersecurity across the agency and use his voice to elevate it across kind of the national security community from, from among his first days as taking over as secretary. And I think the sprints are a way for him to kind of put a big spotlight on critical issues that we need to address. We're not going to solve the entire thing. If the plan is to go to the moon, the sprints help us get out of the atmosphere. And so that's how I'm looking at it. It's going to get us a part of the way there. It's going to highlight attention. It's going to make a big impact. And then it's going to require us to kind of continue to keep up the pressure to make more progress in the weeks and months to come. And for things like cyber, for things like ransomware, this is going to be a massive challenge for the entire government and, and frankly, for governments around the world to address. Jen? And if I could just add one thing, I would just want to re- reiterate what Secretary Mayorkas said in his 
March 31st speech. He gave a big cyber speech on March 31st. And as he talked about, and I think this is framing the department's entire approach to cyber cybersecurity and cyberspace, he says, make no mistake, a free and secure cyberspace is possible. We will champion, champion this vision with our words and our actions. And so that's the goal. That's the vision, a cyberspace that is free and a cyberspace that is secure. All right. So Brandon Wales, head, acting head of CISA, Jen Daskal, the Deputy General Counsel for Cyber Law. Thanks to both of you. This was very informative and a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, we'll have you back uh, when you leave government and uh, are free. As I once said to somebody, said the good news is when you leave government, uh, you can say what you really think. And the bad news is you can say what you really think because nobody cares anymore. So we'll have you on when, when nobody cares. It'll be fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Stuart. Okay. Thanks to Brandon and Jen. Uh, thanks also to Betsy, Nick, and Maury for joining us. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 362 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. 